This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. When it comes to refugees, we see the statistics. We watch the brief 30-second footage of families crossing the border carrying all their life possessions in a single bag. And then the screen flips to a panel discussing the policy debate. In these debates that influence policies that dictate the trajectory of these families' lives, we never get a glimpse into exactly that, the lives. Journalist and author Jessica Godot has set out to capture that experience in her latest book, After the Last Border. Beyond policy, beyond politics, what is the lived experience of the people that are so often debated about? I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us, Beyond Borders. Every refugee has their own story, and you were able to capture the lives of two of them intimately. Munaw, who arrived to the U.S. in 2007 from Myanmar. She was a part of one of the most successful resettlement initiatives in U.S. history. And also Hasna, is it, am I saying it right? Hasna? Hasna is how she pronounces it, yeah. Hasna al-Salam, who arrived in 2016 from Syria. Two refugees, two stories, from two very different times in American immigration policy. So with, with that in mind, why did you select these two women and where does your involvement begin? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, you know, when we began this process, I had been friends with Muna for, um, she, I met her six months after she arrived. So in 2007, she and I had been friends. So what's that, 13 years now. <clears throat> when we first met, she had just arrived. And I began helping her learn English. And eventually she and I worked together with some other friends on a women's cooperative where we helped weavers who were staying at home with their kids sell their products. So that was actually my first introduction to refugees in general. I had no intention of writing a book. I just met these people. I was there translating into Spanish. This was not something that was at all on my radar. And over time through our friendships, I saw what resettlement meant. And I got to see the changes that were happening in public opinion to resettlement firsthand by watching its effect on my friends. So by the time I met Hasna and began interviewing her, I had begun writing about refugee resettlement. It just really connected with her. I knew that I could tell Muna's story because I was in a relationship with Muna in which I knew that she would trust me. It took time to develop that relationship with Hasna, but um, we had an amazing partner who's, who she goes by the pseudonym Amina, and she sat with me. And so the three of us met every two weeks for several hours at a time to tell these stories. So I do want to be clear that this is not something that I would enter into lightly. I have a doctorate in in poetry, and one of the things I look at is issues of representation. And I have really strong opinions about how white people should definitely not be involved in telling the stories of others. I think there are very, very few instances in which it's okay. And this is one of them because both Hasna and Muna are not able to tell their stories because their relatives are in danger in Myanmar and Syria. And so they have these incredibly urgent, incredibly compelling stories. And yet there there are obstacles in the way for them to tell them to the larger public. And so it was only because I have a relationship with them that I felt comfortable bringing these stories in. And because I spent so much time really making sure that each detail was exactly what it should be so that they have control over their own narratives. Great, yes, capturing that authentic voice. Mm -hmm. And so you you talked about uh, the the reasons why they fled in the first place, Um, talking about their family back home. What was happening around them within their environment to cause them to leave? 
Yeah, so in Myanmar, it's the longest running civil war in the history of the world currently. So it's been going on. Most refugee situations have their roots in colonialism when countries and regions were divided up based on Western imperial desires rather than recognizing longstanding tensions or ethnic groups that had different claims to territory. And so what's happening in Myanmar is a great example of that. When the British were involved, they... um, divided the land and there were several other complicated factors, but basically there was a junta that took over and they've been targeting um, people based on their different ethnicities for decades, including the Karen. And that's the different, that's the distinct tribe that Muna is from. We've heard of it most recently with the Rohingya and what's happening in Myanmar, but it's something that's been happening in waves over the last several decades. And so she actually fled um, when she was five years old. So she was very young when she moved to a refugee camp. And then of course, um, Hasna was there in the city of Dara when the war in Syria started. She was a neighbor of the children who began the revolution. So she saw it firsthand from the very beginning. Right, right. Wow. Um, And I think it's important to document and share the stories and lived experiences, why people leave their home country in the first place. Because a lot of times when we're outside of that, if you're in America or Europe and you don't know fully the reasons why you receive refugees and or, or immigrants and, and know their stories, know their experiences, know their, their past to have an empathetic view into their lives because most people don't want to leave their home. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things like the big misunderstandings I encounter all the time. I had an interview not long ago with someone I had to convince that refugees weren't just coming to make good or like try to try to find some sort of loophole. It was such an odd conversation. And I think if you understand even the most basic ideas of what it means to be a refugee, it immediately invokes sympathy and pity. Any of us in a situation in which our lives were in danger or we faced certain persecution would flee and take our children out of danger. That just seems like a, like the most basic human thing. And yet I, I find myself so surprised that we're at this point now where we're even having to debate this. And I also want to say my ancestors immigrated over here because they wanted better lives for themselves. I also think that's a very worthwhile reason to come over. I think coming for education or coming for you know a chance to find a better job, all of these are valuable and worthwhile reasons to travel to another place. It's really only in the last few decades that we've had really like the last century or so that we've had this just horrific debate about in which we're even questioning people's ability to do a little bit better for themselves, but especially for refugees. I think it's a really unique reason that they leave. And I think you hinted towards that timeline in terms of America and the government view on immigration policy and and resettlement. Mm -hmm. You were able to glance into the view of different refugees from different points in time, right? 2007, that policy and and that environment versus 2016. So I'm interested to hear what sort of differences between those times that you might have seen. Yeah, this is where my academic work, I think, was particularly useful for me. Um, You know, it's one of the things that I found so fascinating and also frustrating about this time is it's as if every generation is remaking or coming anew to these ideas. And we think, this is all brand new information. No one has ever thought or argued about it. And it, yet it's the same conversation that's been happening every few decades since this country was founded, right? And so um, one of the things, and, and that said, and there are some, differenti- uh, some differences between the way that we're 
having this conversation now from what has happened even in the recent past. And so um, since 2015, the term refugee suddenly became synonymous with terrorist or with um, someone who's trying to game the system or all these kind of negative connotations that it has not had ever in the history of resettlement in this country. Not since we began using the term refugee as its kind of own distinct visa category. Like these are not just people coming over, but people who are fleeing from war. So I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about going back into history was finding the moments in which we've had these conversations before, this kind of racist view that we're hearing the xenophobia that's come up is like straight from the 1924 textbook. And noticing how Ronald Reagan and um, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, like some of these really conservative presidents were huge, huge fans of refugee resettlement and worked really hard to institute this. This was once a very staunch bipartisan program. So also recognizing that the turn in the last five or six years is really unusual um, since federal refugee resettlement was put into place as a federal program in 1980. Right. Um, I think that's just across the board. I mean, when you look at the travel bans, also 2020 uh, regulatory agenda, which basically lists the different programs that will be either defunded or deregulated. And many of them are H-1Bs and H-4EADs mm -hmm. and F-1s for international students. So it's just reeling back and, and restricting the, the inflow of individuals from outside the country. Absolutely. Well, and I think one of the things that you're touching on, and I'm, this may be kind of where you're headed, just from a human point of view, I'm, I'm not a policy person. So I'm someone who's learned a lot about policies and learned about history, but I came to this book from the lens of friendship with people. And because of that, this for me, in some ways, is a heart issue, no. right? Like that, it seems kind of cheesy to say it that way, but that's how it feels. This, no. the way that these policies have changed, the capriciousness. I mean, students go to bed one night and wake up the next morning, and they're supposed to be back in their home country by the time school starts. I mean, the amount of stress that's happening with these massive changes to immigration, we've never seen anything like this, like what's happening under the pres this presidential administration, not just in terms of refugee resettlement, but in terms of these kinds of massive changes with no warning with no really it seems like even rhyme or reason sometimes and so in this book I really talk about this in relation to the family that comes from Syria um, they came under one basically they came under one resettlement program and with the Muslim ban it changed and how incredibly stressful that was and how that just divides people right down it's their lives it's their husbands and their children and their jobs and just when we continue to act as if this is about policies and, and this is something that the lawmakers need to figure out but not but we don't recognize that this just affects people. I think we're, we're missing what's really at the heart of this issue. Absolutely. Um, and could you give us a sense about either Muna or Hasna, when they came to America, what were some of the difficulties that they experienced? Yeah, so there's a great scene in this book. And I will tell you one of my very favorite things. So I've been friends with Muna this whole time. And I, I was... I knew her well at the point that we kind of began writing. So there was a few month period where I didn't know her. And then I kind of catch in the book, even though I'm, I don't appear as a character. And yet when we interview, when I interviewed her, it was such a, like an amazing experience for me because I got to relive those years with her and I saw a whole different side that I had never seen before. So I went in thinking I understood kind of what her points of stress were. And I had no idea some of the major things that happened to her. And so I think that was really one of the values of letting her control her own story is that she gave me 
the points that were like really stressful. So there's an amazing scene that she told me about um, her caseworker had, um, I don't want to give the whole story away, right, but her yeah, caseworker, no. yeah, but Just it's a little, like, basically, a little taste. So people are like, oh, let me finish the rest of this <laughs> chapter. You know, <laughs> she, she did not have a caseworker respond. It was the, the Karen resettlement program, the Burmese resettlement program, which in, at the beginning, especially in, involved a lot of Karen people mm-hmm. was huge. And it happened really fast. And a lot of resettlement agencies were trying to scale up. And so they had sometimes more people than caseworkers that were able to handle them. And so this is not usually the case. I, I, I want to say this because I'm friends with a lot of resettlement caseworkers and they're amazing, heroic mm-hmm. people who do not get okay. paid enough money. But in this one instance, she kind of fell through the cracks a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what happened, she spoke no English, her husband spoke no English. They had never even been inside of an apartment in a city. So mm-hmm. they were stuck in this apartment. And what happened next and how she found food for her family, it still gives me goosebumps. And I have mm-hmm. spent years with the story. And it was such a minor, the story when, if I were to tell you exactly what happened, it feels really minor, right? She walked out and did some things. But for her, it was like, this first moment of recognizing she could do this and like she might be able to make it. It was really amazing to hear. Yeah. I think most people don't recognize that resettlement is really stressful, right? Like this is major culture shock. There are just a lot of things happening. So that was kind of what I wanted to show in this book is that um, just because people get here doesn't mean everything's better now. It's just the beginning of a new and very complicated journey. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if we, if I put myself in that situation Hey, I leave America. I go to, let's say, Brazil. I can't speak Portuguese. Like, I don't know the culture. I don't know the the people and what what to do, what not to do. You know, even if I looked at the map and GPS, I don't know exactly where to go. So it's new information. You're being bombarded. It's a lot to take into account. Did you know that I used to live in Brazil? Did you just use that oh. as an example? <laughs> I just, you know what, I was getting up, I was was... getting some vibes, I was getting some vibes and you know, that's how it works. No, I I didn't. That's actually, I mean, I I literally feel like that was one of the experiences that I used in the beginning of writing it. And I, again, want to be super careful. I have never been a refugee. I think what they were going through is a thousand times what I went through, but I, I did have that experience as someone who lived for a couple of years in Brazil and some other countries when I didn't speak the language. And the thing that was so frustrating to me is people would treat me like a child because my language level, even once I began to learn some Portuguese, they would speak really slowly to me and look at me like maybe I was not intelligent. And it was so frustrating to me because I was trying so hard. And I saw this happen firsthand all the time with refugees who were brilliant people navigating things that most Americans couldn't, I mean, they did in one day what most Americans, more than most Americans have ever faced in their entire lives. And people would still use these condescending babyish tones with them or apartment managers would try to rob them. I mean, there were just all these things that happened and yet they were so tenacious and so smart in how they navigated it and had so much stress. So I'm I'm really hoping that this book shows even just a, a fraction of what happens for refugees here in the United States and how much they still have to overcome. It's a lot and they're amazing. And that's what I was going to ask in terms of what are some of the principles that you would like for your readers to come away with? Yeah. Um, I this, this seems a, like a cheesy way to put it, but I want them to fall in love a little bit with Munat and Hazma. I'm very conscious of Chimamanda Adichie's amazing TED Talk about the power of a single story and how there is not one single story that shows the refugee experience. And I think so often we are guilty in the West of using stereotypes in place of real people or allowing one person who had a you know really sensational story on a boat in the Mediterranean stand in for all refugees. And 
in some ways, these are just regular women. There are some things that, I mean, they were close to the action in some ways, and, and there are some interesting narrative pieces. But at the same time, I wanted to tell the story of people that I loved and whose minds I found really insightful and thoughtful and um, whose, whose internal journey was really powerful to witness as a person. And so I, I want people to recognize that refugees aren't a visa category. Nobody ever talks about me as a tourist, even though I've been a tourist in all kinds of places. And yet we always view refugees only by the category of the visa that got them out at the worst possible time in their lives. And they are, you know, teachers or mothers or tailors or construction workers. They just run the gamut and they're just, they're people. And I want readers to be able to recognize and relate to that. I want them to think I would have made the same decisions. I would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. August 4th, uh, please Mm -hmm. pick up after the last border. We, so often look at people as just a statistic or just a number, uh, just a visa category. What you do is really put the reader into the lives and you can feel, wow, if I would, was born in a different place, if I was in a different situation, mm-hmm. that could be me. Yeah, thanks, Ian. It, you know, it was easy when it's people like Munan Hasna and others whose stories are just so amazing. So it was, for me, a, a real joy to do that. I'm glad it resonated with you. Thanks so much. Thank you to Lee Researcher, Con Branch, Assistant Producers, Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.